In episode three of I Am Cold, the story of Indrid, we sat down with aviation expert Jim Goodall, discussing his 50 years of research into the United States military's aviation technology, the cover-up of off-world technology by our military, his time spent in Area 51, and some interesting friends he's made along the way in the areas of tech and ufology, including Ben Rich, John Lear, and Bob Lazar. What more information or secrets could Jim have to reveal? This is the ending of our conversation with Jim Goodall, part four of I Am Cold, The Story of Indrid, Black Book. Jim, there was a lot of tech expansion, it seems, in the 1950s and 60s. And I watched a show recently about... um, the some of the presidents going as far back as Harry Truman in the 1940s, who had to deal with this kind of panic of UFOs and basically presidents who had either knowledge of maybe some type of UFO activity. And it seemed like a lot of it went back to the 40s and the 50s and the 60s. I think they even talked about JFK in the week or 10 days before he died had issued a memo to the CIA about sharing alien information with the Soviets. You were in the military at a time that a lot of this was going on. Do you remember any of that happening? Kind of this panic amongst people, um, presidents shooting down the fact that aliens may or may not be real? Well, uh, Jimmy Carter is not one of my favorite presidents, but he's a good guy, decent guy. And, you know, he was an, uh, a, a nuclear power guy. I mean, and he said, go, going up to the election, he said, when I, when I. Jim, you still there? I lost you somehow. You there? Are you still there? Did you lose him? Yep. Jim, you there? He still, still says he's connected. Are you still connected, Annie? Yeah, I can hear you, and it's still recording, but I, I can't hear him at all. He's well, gone. Try to call him back in. Okay. Yeah, I'm going to try to reconnect with him. It almost sounds like it's weird because there was a couple times where it would click in and out like somebody was listening to the call, and... I don't know. I'll have to go back and listen to it, but it's just weird. Somebody, somebody's listening. I'm not hearing that from my end. Can you hear it on yours? Yeah, I heard it a couple of times. I haven't been listening the whole time. I've just been kind of, you know, being producer mode, I guess, just listening to make sure it's, it sounds good and everything. But I've been up here with her laying down and I heard it a couple of times where he clicked in and out. And then that time it was, you know, it wasn't like losing him like a normal Skype call. Like he was blatantly cut off and he was still on on the recording. So I, I don't know what happened. 
is Serial Spirits, the podcast, and the search for injured cold. My name is Annie Weibel. I'm a paranormal investigator, podcaster, and social media host, and I've dedicated more than a decade of my life to explaining the unexplainable. What you'll hear in this podcast is one of the most bizarre stories we've encountered yet, one that has changed the way we've looked at everything. And my name is Brendan Shea. For over a decade, I've been exploring the supernatural and the unexplained. This story we are about to tell was one of the first stories so many years ago that led me down this road and furthered my interest into finding some answers, some truth to what we as humans can only begin to comprehend. This podcast helps share some of these stories to all corners of the globe. We leave it up to you whether you believe it or not. At the end of episode three, we had just begun discussing some of our most hard-hitting questions with Jim, including presidential cover-ups of UFO activity, when we began hearing a bizarre interference in our call, pops and cracks in the line, and then suddenly lost Jim's audio altogether, even though it appeared that he was still on the line. After re-listening to the recorded interview, we found that some words were mysteriously omitted from the audio file, and not by us or Jim. We have used Skype hundreds of times on other recordings, and not always without malfunction, but this disturbance in the call sounded completely different. Could someone have been tapping Jim's phone, attempting to edit our call? Was someone listening? When we reconnected with Jim, we began to discuss different types of optics and telescopes used by some of these technology colleges and observatories around the world, and the search for life in space. The 2.1 meter telescope, which was managed and operated by Caltech, and their, their job for five years, which ended about a year and a half ago, was to look in a very small section, I'm talking about a postage stamp size part of our Milky Way, looking for exoplanets. Those are planets that exist outside of our solar system. And in the five-year time frame, they, they were able to identify over 8,000 exoplanets. And then just before I quit being a, a docent up at Kitt Peak, they had a gathering of all the docents and most of the astronomers. And one of the key senior people from the National Science Foundation uh, spoke to our, our gathering. And he had just uh, returned from a, uh, I guess, a week-long or a 10-day-long uh, session he didn't say where, where all of the key astronomers have been, been looking uh, and searching for exoplanets from all, from all the observatories all over, the, all over the planet. They came to the conclusion that for every star in the universe, and that's a number you can't cram into anybody's head, it's too, too big, but for every star in the universe, they calculate there's one and a half planets. And out of that incredible number of planets, they calculate, again, this is, this is not junk science. This is from the National Science Foundation and uh, the, the people that go search for this stuff. They, they said, based on their best calculations, that there are two 
billion, and that's with a B. There are two billion Earth-like planets orbiting a similar-sized star as our brown dwarf in the inhabitable zone with liquid water. Now, our galaxy is about 4.2 billion years old. The universe itself is 14.3 billion. There are some people who've had a 10 billion year head start on us technology-wise. So, and to quote Jodie Foster's character in the movie Contact, if we're the only ones, what a waste of space. How can we be alone? Mankind is selfish to think that in an expanse as gigantic as the universe, how can we be alone? At one point in time, man was convinced the Earth was flat. We believed the sun, the moon, and other celestial bodies revolved around the Earth. The truth is simple. We are not alone. And we haven't been for eons. And to quote Jodie Foster's character in the movie Contact, if we're the only one, what a waste of space. The Majestic 12 is a code name for an alleged governmental organization that was believed to have been established in 1947 by President Harry S. Truman to investigate UFO activity. Stemming from the supposed cover-up of an alien spaceship crash in Roswell, New Mexico, the Majestic 12 was widely regarded as fiction or a hoax until 1984. In December of that year, Film producer Jamie Chandere received a package addressed from Albuquerque, New Mexico, containing a roll of 35mm film. When developed, the photograph supposedly depicted eight pages of a document dated November 1952, in which Vice Administrator Roscoe Hillenketter revealed to Dwight D. Eisenhower that the United States government had recovered the remains of two downed alien spacecrafts. In 1987, after learning the document had been leaked to a British writer named Timothy Good, Chandere and his associate, conspiracy theorist William Moore, released their copy to the media first, sparking a wave of controversy. The FBI and Air Force obtained copies of the leaked documents and claimed that all were, quote, bogus, citing inconsistencies in the documents such as incorrect rankings assigned to some members of the group and bizarre verbiage that both agencies claimed they would never have used. Also, the fact that it literally was dropped at the doorstep of a Hollywood producer did not bode well for the validity of the film. No matter how much the documents were dismissed, some die-hard ufologists still believe the documents were real and that the Majestic 12 really did, or does, exist. Yeah, MJ-12, Majestic 12. MJ-12. And their, and their documents... Yeah, and their documents supporting that organization. And they were put together before there was cut and paste on computers, uh, before there was internet, before there was uh, Photoshop, where you could add stuff and take stuff off that, you know, that no one could tell. So those documents appear to be genuine. But in, until But until the federal government puts an official stamp on a release of information, it's just speculation. Now, right, af- right after Fox News and the New York Times announced that some engineer had said that we have craft operating that were not 
built or designed on this earth. And things went nuts. I called up Bob Lazar and I said, Bob, I said, first I got a hold of his wife. And I said, Bob around. She says, yeah, he's in the lab. I said, is he available? She said, sure. And I've, I've known his wife and Bob for almost 40 years, 30, 35 years. And uh, we, uh, Bob got on the phone. And I said, well, how does it feel to be vindicated? He said, well, I got really excited when I first, you know, when I first heard it. And then after I thought about it for a while, this may be a ruse. This may be a sleight of hand to take your attention off something else, from a, you know, a, you know, something different. Uh, he said, if they come out with some hard evidence, then I will, then I will feel vindicated. But until they do, and unless they do, it's just someone else spouting out that made headlines somewhere that with no backup. He was hoping like hell that something would happen. Now I'm going to go visit Bob. He's since relocated from where he used to live. And I'm going to go up, maybe spend a day or two at his place, uh, probably next spring. And he's a, he's a friend and I believe him. There's these, you're talking about these black book projects. You know, there was that show that was really popular on TV for a long time called the X-Files. And when you say things like that, I think people look at it like it was not reality, right? It was just a TV show. But then in talking with people like you who have been there and you have seen some of the, the things that have been created by our government, it seems like these projects exist. These black book projects exist somehow. Black book project is a term used for a highly classified military or defense project unacknowledged by government, military personnel, and contractors. These projects are everything your government does not want you to know about. Like maybe... Injured cold? Well, every every senior person I've I've ever talked to that has worked at Area 51 or worked on extremely above top secret programs, um, they you know they are they're all they're all strong proponents of the fact that we're not alone. All of them are. Uh, a good uh, a good example: a friend of mine who spent of his 40 years at the Skunk Works, he spent I think a total of 12 years at area 51 and he's the one who put the hello phone in there guys would go away they'd be gone for six weeks their their wives or girlfriends would have absolutely no idea where they're at and there's no way if there was a family emergency how they could get hold of them he's at a place that doesn't exist that's it's if there's any true definition of a black hole that would be area 51 it does not officially exist. They have recently, in the last 20, 30 years, acknowledged the existence of a flight test facility north of Vegas, uh, bordering on a dry lake bed. That would be Area 51. But it's just—I mean, it's just there's there's just too much there's too much stuff out there that you can you can you can draw from. I, there's also people who uh, Dave. Fruhoff made some phone calls. This is after he was interviewed by, I think, George Knapp, I think it was, and because he was the facility manager at Area 51. And he, and he said that he asked a bunch of guys that were, were still working there when Bob said he was working at S4. And he said there's, uh, they referred to the Janet flights as the red and whites. So he asked the guys, is it any of you guys taking the red and whites up to, up to the test site? Do you ever remember seeing or hearing a guy named Bob Lazar? And he says, a couple of them said, yeah, I vaguely remember the name. And then, and there were other reports of uh, 
stuff being designated to go to a place called S4 stuff would be coming in on a, on a military transport, like a C5 or whatever offloaded. And it was going to various, you know, you know, various programs. And there was some stuff that was dedicated to, and this is what Dave Fuhoff said. He said he vaguely recalled seeing something uh, that was going to be shipped to a location called S4, which he had no knowledge of other than that, just that designator. So there's a lot of stuff that goes on in, in the desert, and, and they will forever. And we, we, we do need a classified test site you know, to test our, and build our stuff, uh, whether it be manned air breathing or uh, uh, you know, interdimensional uh be able to go, you know, go across the universe in a blink of an eye, you know, such as a Stargate, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Did you catch that? What Goodall says here? You know, interdimensional, uh, be able to go, you know, go across the universe in a blink of an eye, you know, such as a Stargate, stuff like that. It sounds just like a throwaway line. Quote, we need a place to be able to test our stuff, manned air breathing or interdimensional, end quote. What does he mean by this? Do we really have this technology? When my dad was a young man, he was my dad was a brilliant engineer in his in his life, uh, but he was all, always challenging technology. And when he was eleven or twelve years old, uh, my grandmother, the sweet lady she was, she got mad at my my dad, and he said, "said You're reading all this Buck Rogers stuff. This is this is just bunk." And my dad told. My mother, you know, my grandmother, and this is in the 1930s, who said, Mother, before you die, man will set foot on the moon. Well, the day Neil Armstrong set on the foot on the moon, the phone rang, rang at my, you know, my mom and dad's place, and it was my dad's mom apologizing for not believing him. <laughs> so any, anything, I mean, you look at Jules Verne, the stuff he wrote. I mean, right. he, was, he was right. He may have, yeah. He may have been looking at, you know, 1900s type technology to do what what he predicted to do. But the stuff he talked about going to the moon, uh, you know, the Nautilus and other stuff. Anything, anything you read in science fiction will eventually be turned into be science fact. In spite of the opinions of certain narrow-minded people who would shut up the human race upon this globe. We shall one day travel to the moon, the planets and the stars with the same facility, rapidity, and certainty as we now make the ocean voyage from Liverpool to New York. Anything anything you read in science fiction will eventually be turned into be science fact. What human being would ever have conceived the idea of such a journey? And if such a person really existed, he must be an idiot, whom one would shut up in a lunatic ward rather than within the walls of the projectile. Jules Verne, From the Earth to the Moon. Thank you.
When Woodrow Derenberger talked about injured cold and his people from Lanulos, he frequently referred to them as interdimensional. As we heard in part two, we will see you in time. Most of the sightings of these so-called ultra-terrestrials are out of place with the time, lingo, and style of clothing, for example. We were curious to get Jim's take on this, especially after he made the interdimensional comment. Could we have developed this technology? There were some some words you said there and that you've said before that that grabbed my interest and it's kind of the crux of what we have been looking into. You said the word interdimensional and you were talking about telepathy. The story behind a lot of the research that we have been doing here is one um, that happened locally here. There is a town uh, about 40 minutes from me called Point Pleasant, West Virginia. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you're familiar with that area or that story, but back in the 1960s, there were multiple sightings of UFOs here. Uh, kind of this influx of people that eventually would be called men in black that came into this town okay. that were very out of place. I mean, you're talking rural West Virginia. Everybody knew everybody. <laughs> and then hollers, huh? they, they were, yeah, there were literally people in these hollers that had, and then there was a sighting of a creature over the course of years uh, that they eventually termed Mothman. And one of the most startling stories and one that has kind of been the basis for some of the research that we have been doing was the story of a man named Woodrow Derenberger who claimed that on his way home from work one night, he was uh, stopped by a spaceship on the highway. And a man gets out of this spaceship and begins talking with him telepathically. And for years, Woody and even his family claimed that they continued to have encounters with this being that called himself Indrid Cold. And so I wonder in any of the research that you have done or any of the people that you know, whether it be Bob Lazar or George, any of these guys, have you ever heard those names come across in any other research that you've done? No. No, I haven't. Because, I mean, my my focus, and it's been this way forever, and it just so happens that because of what my focus is, it's led me you know, in other directions. I'm a hardware guy. I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm an awful lot like Bob made his statement was, I'm a, you know, I'm a, a physicist. If I can't prove it mathematically or put my hands on it, it doesn't exist. I look at UFOs, alien spacecraft, probably through that filter. I, I believe they're here. I believe they've been coming here since the beginning of time. I I believe that there are many many uh, worlds out there that have uh, we have yet to discover, uh, and other entities under being other beings that are out there. There's just there are two billion Earths out there that can support life. One of them, at least one of them, has had to uh, you know gone you know gone through. Uh, you know, multiple generations of of life forms until the uh, human type of uh, uh, population on the planet, whatever the planet may be, and any anything that anything that you've read as far as science fiction, 
that all turns that inevitably turns into fact. So there really isn't. I mean, as as outrageous of an idea as you have about what something could do or what they can, you know, go across the universe in the blink of an eye, that's where we're headed. That's that that will in, in ten years, twenty years, or fifty years from now will not be science fiction. It'll be science fact. Do you think there were ever any government experiments in which um, telepathy, mind control, interdimensional travel was ever tested out on humans, even members of the military that may have um, agreed to it, I guess? I would have to say if they hadn't, they're they in dereliction of duty. It's something that you should, I mean, you, you have to look at, at every form of communicating with other human beings or other entities. But as far as uh, telepathy goes, my grand, my, my mom's families are, they're all Sicilian. And my grandfather was in charge of the uh, fishing fleet out of San Francisco Bay all the way down to San Pedro. He was in, he was in charge of all the Italian, Sicilian, and Portuguese fishermen on the West Coast. They would go to Alaska for five months. And there was no internet, there's no telephone, there's no nothing, not, not even mail service. So when they're gone for five months, you don't know until they come back how much money they made, who died, who got sick, who, who lost an arm or whatever. But wives of the village, this is Pittsburgh, California. It's on the San Joaquin Sacramento Delta. That's at one time I was related to everybody whose name ended in a vowel. But the, the, the ladies of, of, the, of the town would come to my grandmother and say, Angelina, Angelina, when, could you t- can you say how... Tell me if Giuseppe or, you know, Franciosus or Salvatore is okay. And Nana would say, I will ask my great aunt in my dreams tonight. And she'd come back saying, you know, so, you know such and such is okay, such and such lost her finger, this and that. But the other thing I would ask her, they always get paid in cash. There's no place to spend your money. There's no 7-Eleven. There's no, there's no uh, Las Vegas. They're on a fishing boat <laughs> the whole time. So they... Uh, so the, 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 the wives would come up to my grandmother and ask her, said, can you, can you tell me how much money is in Giuseppe's or so-and-so's uh, pay envelope when, when they get home next month? And she was generally within uh, a couple dollars of what was in there. And it, everybody got paid a different uh, amount depending on what your job was and de- depending what boat you were, you were on and depending on what, uh, what the t- total overall yield was. And she could, you know, she could tell you. My mother could do the same thing. And I had a friend, his name was Don Avery. Uh, we were uh, both worked for the phone company when I first got out of the service the first time. And I had a 10-year break and I went back in. Uh, Don would start to say something and I would finish the se- sentence. Or he was getting ready to say something and I would bring up the exact same ch- subject, which had nothing to do with what we were talking about. So one day, uh, Don got a book on ESP. He's in the living room. I'm in the... Uh, the Dan, you know, my feet up on the couch. I'm just uh, taking the snooze. We're going to go out and party. And he said, hey, I have a book, and there's 10 symbols in here, and I'm going to go through, and I'm going to go through it twice. So you have 20 chances to get these, these symbols right or wrong. And there would be three squiggly uh, horizontal lines with two bars on top and two dots. And that's, that's how complex the, uh, the, the items were. So I'm laying in bed, and you know, Don's asking me, he said, he's, he's putting his finger on something and then thinking about it, and I, I got 19 out of 20. 
Wow. And I was disappointed that they can get 20 out of 20. <laughs> and he said, because he used, he, he went and picked the same item one right after the other, the other. So I, I was, I was thinking of, you know, he told me what, uh, he thought of what it was. I got it correct. He never took his finger off the, the item and said, okay, what's the next object? I'm thinking about it. And immediately that, that image came up, but it couldn't be because I just did it. So I guessed, and that's the only reason I got 19 out of 20. So I have, uh, I think we all have that ability. It's just that it has to be relearned. And there's, um, it was a, it was a, it was a silly movie, but it was based, I think it was based on some fact. It was the men who talked to goats. And wasn't it a military, they were some type of military right. outfit and they were trying to communicate by ESP. So it's not, yeah. even as someone who's been in the service and your life has been based on science, you've still experienced it. So it's not completely out of the realm of possibility in the human mind to be able to communicate this way, at least in, in my opinion, it's not. Right. Now I, I grew up in, in the Mountain View, Los Alamos area of the Bay area, Silicon Valley. And my mom would have premonitions. She, she would out of the blue, she said, you know, it feels like earthquake weather. And within 24 hours, we have a measurable, measurable earthquake. Now, every time she said we were going to have it within 24 hours, she didn't get 100% of all of them. But every one that she said we're having it where it feels like an earthquake weather, it happened. So th that ability that ability uh, resides within us is just that we have forgotten how to access uh, that portal, if you want to call it that. You know, you have these soothsayers, these mind readers, and stuff like that. And, and I've been to, I've seen a couple of them where I know I know that they this wasn't a setup because one of them well uh, one of them was about me and the guy was pretty much right on the button of what I was thinking so it is there we all I think we all have that ability we just uh, we have it's been unlearned uh, over the you know the many thousands of years that we've been standing erect just this year while researching different technology I came across an article by a blog called consequencesofsound.net. It was written by Nina Corcoran. In this article, she talks about a company that has created a device that is able to beam music directly into your head, no earbuds or brain implants necessary. This new device is called SoundBeamer 1.0. This product uses a 3D sensing module to track the ear of a person and send the music or audio via ultrasonic waves. It creates or builds sound pockets by the ears. This basically plays music or audio only the user can hear. To quote the article, she writes, You don't believe it because it sounds like a speaker, but no one else can hear it. You don't need to tell the device where you are. It is not streaming to any one place. It follows you wherever you go. This is what we dream of. A world where we get the sound we want. You don't need to disturb others, and others don't get disturbed by your sound, but you can still interact with them. End quote. Is this how these beings interact with us? So many of the contactees like Woodrow Derenberger claim this is how the beings communicated with them. Being a firm believer in telekinesis and psychic ability, could these beings simply just use a form of technology they created 
for thought transference. Because like us, they all may not have this ability shared by a few. So if there's a a culture out there from another planet that is a little more um, adept to it, I guess you could say, maybe I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility to think that someone from one of these billion, uh, you know, stars or planets planets or Earth-like planets that exist out there, if they were to come here, that that would just be, that's just how they communicate. If they have the ability to travel multiple light years instantly, then uh, telepathy is not something that would be a challenge to them, whoever that may be. So that, I mean, there, there's speculation and there's, you know, there's been uh, you know, science fiction stories written about the fact that uh, these, an, you know, entities communicate by thought. And I've always thought that, you know, that that, that capability exists. Because I know I, I've been out in the middle of Tippecoo Valley, which is the East Area 51. It was a crescent-shaped moon. It was just a sliver. It had gone behind the uh, uh, it, behind the horizon. It was just still a little bit of a dark blue glow uh, at sunset. And I'm standing near the black mailbox, and I said, "Okay, ETs, if you can read my mind, abduct me." And I'm thinking as hard as I can. I'm here. I'm I'm a willing participant. Abduct me. And to my knowledge, I haven't been abducted. <laughs> Even though I had been using telepathy, I still did not understand it completely. So I asked Indrid to explain it to me. After he had done so, I did understand it. But it is still hard for me to put into words, although I will try. Mental telepathy, or thought transference, as they call it, is very simple. It is merely the ability to release your thoughts, and to do this, you have to trust the person or persons you are talking to, for you actually open up your mind to let other persons look into it. You just think what you want them to know, and the thoughts are transferred into the other person's mind. Indrid told me that impulses from a person's mind are stronger than any radio signal known, but you have to know how to direct them and control them. You, also as the receiver, have to know how to relax your mind and let the thought or words form into your mind. It does sound hard to understand, but it does work. For with them, I can communicate as easily as I speak English. Woodrow Derenberger Visitors from Lanulos There is a theory that alien abductions may not be physical, as in someone actually being taken aboard a spacecraft by aliens, but that the abductee's mind is actually hijacked. Their minds manipulated into a physical manifestation of an abduction. They enter an astral plane as they experience a real-time event. Is this just another type of alien technology? I asked Jim about what he believes. Anything like that's possible, John Lear, when he was still flying for American Trans Air, he was their senior pilot. Um, and he, he tracked down 15, I think 15 people who claimed to be, a, had been abducted. And John said that when he would fly into a town, he'd make arrangements for them to be hypnotized. They would, he would contact a board certified hypnos, you know, hypnotist that's certified for deep hypnosis. 
And he said, of the 15 people that he uh, met with and had hypnotized you know, with their permission, 13 of them had almost the exact same story and feeling and everything about the uh, the abduction. Two of them, John said, they were, you know, they were charlatans or, you know, they were, they were along for the ride, but they had never been, they, in his opinion, they had never been abducted. So these people who have been, who have been abducted and have gone into very, very deep uh, hypnosis when they've talked about, and it, some of them were quite, he said the sessions were, you know, almost, almost frightening for some of them. Because it's something that, you know, they, they had been told to block out and they weren't supposed to remember. But under deep hypnosis, they were able to, you know, re- regain a lot of their lost memory. He said it was it said it was it was so eerie to have almost word for word describing the same things. And these are thir- 13 different, it's totally different individuals with no connection whatsoever with with any of the other uh, any of the other uh remaining 15 or 14 uh, persons. None of them were very bright, uh, probably average IQ. Um, I think it was, it was, there, was there was one uh, bump on the log uh, with maybe an ambient temperature IQ, but he still had the same story. So they're out there. They're, people are being abducted, and they're, they're saying this has been going on forever. And if you've been abducted once, as a child, you've probably been abducted multiple times throughout your life. I'm a, I have a friend of mine who works for the National Security Agency. She was abducted as a, as a, uh, a young girl, and she she says she still she still has uh, lingering feelings that they come back every once in a while. Uh, but she uh, but apparently it has infected her position her position at the National Security Agency. So that's maybe terrifying. That's what they want they want oh yeah yeah. I mean, I just, and I, you know, I've, I'm not afraid to die. Uh, I think some people, when they get abducted, that's something that, that's what terrifies them. What are they going to do to me? Am I going to survive or whatever? Uh, I spent 11 hours on an operating room table almost 35 years ago, and I wasn't supposed to get off the table. I was supposed to have died. And it's an incredible feeling to be freed from the worry about dying. I don't care. I, 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 I don't let, I'm not, I I can't say I'm not afraid of anything. I'm often, I'm cautious about stupid people with, you know, with weapons, but I'm not, I'm not, I'm not afraid to face the unknown. And there's a lot of people are terrified. Now, one of the speculations and this, I kicked this around for the last 40 some odd years. Why, why is there a lockdown on the governments, not just ours, but all of them, the government's not releasing information on us being visited by uh, beings from another uh, another solar system, another planet, another universe, is because a majority of the glue that holds the world together is the glue of believing in a supreme being, be it God, be it Muhammad, you know, be it Buddha, uh, be it you know uh, Adam Smith. I mean, whomever. And for and if you're well, if you're educated and reasonably intelligent, the existence of alien life forms would not terrify you. But a majority of the world is second, third, and fourth world type people. If all of a sudden it is brought to their attention or, you know, shoved in their face that we're not alone, that we have, we have uh, 
beings from another solar system, another uh, another uh, another world. That they, they they're coming here on a regular basis, one to abduct us or to experiment on, on us, and we may be their feedlot for alien beings. They, you know, they we may we may be just going along our merry way, thinking everything's fine and dandy, but we're no different than the cows in the feedlot. They're getting ready to be butchered. And we, that may be what Earth is used for. I don't know. I have a feeling, I have a feeling that, we, that things are coming to a head. I don't know. There is anything I put my, my finger on it, but I have, a, I have a, just a gut feeling that something very, very significant is going to happen uh, as it pertains to alien beings and UFOs and, and whatever in the near future. There's just too, there's, there, there are way too many reports of large craft. Just feet from where I sit now recording this podcast hangs a map of the United States. Like every person researching leads that span across the USA, there are points marked there. Each dot, color-coded, means something different. Following sightings across the Appalachian region, we begin to track encounters similar to that of Injured Cold and the Mothman. You didn't think we forgot about him, did you? But why these areas? If a being like Injured Cold were to exist, what would draw him in not only to our planet, but to these specific areas, these little corners so specific to our own universe? There had to be a connection. And once we researched these regions, we begin to find the similarities. Many of these areas were abundant with natural resources, the means of transporting the resources, and the companies that thrive off of these resources. A few of these companies appeared over and over again. The last question that I had, which has been um, one in our research that I think we have found most fascinating in some of this research that we have done, whether it has been here in West Virginia or um, at really throughout the United States, there are these areas that ufologists call flaps, where they have all these sightings of of uh, UFOs and different activity, men in black, things of that nature. Mm-hmm. And they seem to follow a specific pattern. Um, there are lots of things that connect them, rivers, railways. There are these companies that some of them are tech companies and some of them are natural resource companies that follow this same path as well. And so Mm -hmm. there were a couple of them that keep repeating in our research. And I wonder if I say the name of any of these to you, if they would ring a bell or be something that you have okay. heard before. The first one is Honeywell Corporation. Oh, yeah. Honey, Honeywell is involved at every level of all the black programs in Area 51. Uh, really? They, they, supplied, they supplied all the data, uh, flight uh, data equipment, uh, autopilot, stabilization augmentation system for the D-21s, the U-2s, the Blackbirds, the F-117s. So that, you know, they have been, they have been part of, they've been part of the process forever. It is no secret that big tech, governments, and some type of natural resource plays a role in many UFO sightings and conspiracies. But to follow a specific pattern of sightings and encounters with being seen in the same areas with the same companies was intriguing. For Jim to confirm that Honeywell 
and Honeywell Aerospace is in fact involved in some type of black projects lends more validity to our theory that perhaps these beings do have a true purpose for choosing the locations and the people they do. Do you know of any specific um, projects or programs that they had been involved in that you could name? I mean, other than other than the known uh, stuff I just mentioned, which is you know, mm-hmm. aircraft flown out by the by Lockheed. Again, a lot of this stuff is buried so deep that you and I will never, see, you know, that we'll never see the light of day if we were buried that deep. So, right. It's. I don't. I don't. Let's say I, I'm very, very familiar with Honeywell. Honeywell used to be one of my clients way back when, uh, and the uh, avionics, the military avi- avionics division in they call it Honeywell Ridgeway, which is in northeast Minneapolis. They were one of my accounts, and they were, you know, they were responsible for the avionics for a lot of a lot of your real, real spooky programs. Same with Rosemont. Um, I got to believe Lockheed's right there. You, you know, you have uh, the Phantom Works at uh, at Boeing, you know, Boeing slash McDonnell mm-hmm. Douglas, and you have the Black, you know, the Black Widow uh, nest at Northrop. So they had, you know, they have. Uh, if any if any entity is going to be involved in in these UFO uh, hardware uh, and capabilities, it would be it would be one of those three companies will have some invet, you know, some involvement in there somehow. Uh, regardless of how black they are, they you you cannot develop the technology in a vacuum. So mm-hmm. you have to have access. Uh, and and if if the aliens are are giving companies uh, you know the you know the uh, hand up to a new technology, it'll be those companies. I mean, when when uh, there was a book written by a retired army colonel, I can't remember his name, but it was, a, it was called, the book was called The Day After Roswell. It's very, it's very well known, and this colonel's job, and apparently he's been he's been verified as being being who he says he is. His it was his job uh, in the Foreign Technology Division of the United States Army to parcel out all the stuff that they gathered out from uh, Roswell, the Roswell crash. Uh, there's speculation that it took Dupont. 15 years to reverse engineer Kevlar because there's there's no nothing would make sense putting certain chemicals and, and stuff together to create the Kevlar uh, it would either happen purely by accident or it was something that they were handed and then they did reverse engineering much like what Bob Lazar did reverse engineering on the propulsion system on the alien spacecraft which was uh, element 115 so Anybody and, and everybody that uh, mm-hmm. yeah, go on. It's incredible that you said Dupont because that's another one um, that has major ties to this area that we live in. That we suspected the same thing. Dupont and there was another subsidiary called Union Carbide that sit yep. right along the Ohio River, uh, close to Charleston, West Virginia, which is about forty-five minutes from here. And the funny thing uh-huh. is. The story that I was telling you about earlier, the man named Woodrow Derenberger that had this encounter with this being named Indrid Cold, Woody used to work for Union Carbide. He was a welder. And it seemed like a lot of these encounters with these humanoid beings that we uncovered, 
you start seeing ties to people who had their hands in these companies, DuPont and Union Carbide being two of the very local here that, gosh, have been around since probably the 40s and 50s. Or, or before. Or even before. Yeah, there were there yeah. are some others just across the border in Kentucky. Um, there's one called Allied Chemical. Yeah. And another one called Armco. And I believe Allied even sold into Honeywell, if I'm remembering correctly. Way back, way back in the 50s, there were, you know, there were thousands of individual companies that are now, now still around, but they're under the guise of, of United Technologies or Lockheed or, or uh, a Northrop Grumman uh, or some other conglomerate of uh, companies. So you know these these if if we're being visited we and if and if we're if they are requesting our assistance in any way shape or form you know, to to do things that they need to have done they 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 will have to deal they'll have to deal with with uh, our highest level of high tech companies you know, to do whatever they need to have done it doesn't it just it doesn't surprise me that the name you know names like Honeywell and Allied Chemical and and uh, whatever you know, come up in the conversation because you cannot come come to this planet if you want to do something in a in a specific area then you find and you you say uh, you're a little green man from Mars and you uh, you want you want to find a company that has an expertise in uh, compact fusion or we have uh, superconductivity or very very rare uh, uh, elements such as 115 uh, that they've been able to produce. By the way, uh, at one time it was said that this is the element that Bob Lazar said used to power the anti-gravity uh, amplifier in his sports model that he worked on. So it, someone has someone has to be able to carry the ball if we're working in cooperation with with uh, alien beings, and it would have to it would have to be your 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 top 100 your fortune 100 companies right i think like all honeywell. of them are probably involved in one <laughs> yeah honeywell yeah. 3m uh ge uh dupont selenies you, you start naming all the chemical companies and all the you know all the high-tech companies and and for you know for all, for all for all we know uh you know some of these entities could be subterranean they could be uh you know below the surface of the ocean there's been a lot of reports of like the Tic Tacs, all of a sudden, you know, dive into the ocean, no splash, and they're gone, coming out of the water. Um, I know you had, there's some, there was some, uh, a guy in a light airplane was down out, outside of Melbourne or Adelaide, uh, Australia, saying there was, there was an object, very, very large objects coming, coming towards him, and he was within a couple miles of the shore, and he disappears from radar, disappears forever, no trace was ever found. Um, they're there. They need someone to help them if they're if they're coming here and they if they if they need our resources if they're if they're looking at how far we have evolved technology wise. Why some of this really bizarre stuff has happened in our little no name towns around here, and I go back yeah. to the abundance of natural resources that we have here, whether it's coal, whether it's natural gas. My brother works for. Uh, the state of West Virginia for the um, Department of Environmental Protection. He's an environmental scientist. Okay. 
And he told me a couple of years ago after he started uh, working for the DEP that little known fact along the Ohio River is that there are, in conjunction with all of these chemical plants, there are miles of underground tunnels of um, of gas, of gas deposits, so that if anything uh-huh. ever happened, I, I don't know what they plan on doing with it. I don't know why it's there, but it's hidden. And there are little hidden gems throughout West Virginia, just like uh, the, the Greenbrier Hotel that had the underground bunker that was supposed to be, you know, oh, if anything the, happened the, during the, the Cold War. The safe haven. Right, right. Safe havens. And, yeah, they had one, they had one in uh, Whittier, Alaska as well. It was damaged mm-hmm. by the earthquake, mm-hmm. uh, but that's where that's where all the residents live now that stay in Whittier. Uh, but it was a it was a safe haven in case of, in case of World War Three, mm-hmm. or an alien invasion. There are a lot of people who have had these claims too of these subterranean creatures that they have encountered. Um, There are some places in Kentucky that aren't far from us that they claim under these, um, in these cave systems, that they've had everything from sightings of little green men to um, wolf-like creatures that they would call, I guess, dog man for lack of a better word, a lot of things mm-hmm. like they detail mm-hmm. at uh, Skinwalker Ranch, everything all the way up to almost cult-like activity. And you talked about people going missing in some of these areas. If you're talking about these subterranean cultures, is it beyond the realm of possibility to think that that could still exist underground somewhere? There's- I mean, a, a good example of, of someone who want, who doesn't want to be found uh, after World War II, uh, they, they they discovered in the 1950s, and I think even as late as the the mid to late 1960s, we're talking about you know 25, 30 years after the end of World War II, there were still some Japanese fighters that were still holed up in the jungle. Jeez. And they weren't yeah. that far, you know. They weren't that far from population centers, but they just they didn't know that they didn't know that we weren't at war anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's, you know, how many reports have been going on for, even with the Indians going back hundreds and hundreds of years, talking about Sasquatch, Bigfoot, right. the abominable snowman. Um, you know, they're 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 constantly discovering mammals in places like Vietnam. They just came up with it with a, with a new type of, I think it was a monkey and another one and some other place. We live in a very, very big world. I mean, it's, it's small by, by the universe standards, but it's a huge place as far as, you know, mankind is concerned. You know, we haven't, we've only, we've only searched and mapped out less than 10% of the world's ocean. Right. We there could be there could be entire worlds under underwater that we have no knowledge of, and there's been all sorts of speculation that some of this some of these things that are coming out of the water are going diving back into the water. 
there's there's when you're when you're dealing in with with this type of uh, involvement with alien beings and stuff like that that may they very well could have been going on forever we we may have been we may have been a seed planet where they maybe their their civilization is dying out so let we're going to we're going to seed the earth and there's been a couple of times that oh we screwed up on that one so let's wipe those out and start let's start with with new and maybe maybe we're the latest you know, the, the the 2020 version of uh, mankind and maybe because of that, they're gonna they're gonna come back, and they're either they're going to make themselves known to the world. And trust me, if that happens, it's gonna be it's gonna be a, a cultural shock and a, 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 a kick in the crotch to a lot of people because mm-hmm. there's a lot of people say, nah, you you know, aliens aren't real, UFOs aren't real. Uh, we're the only ones. Well, to think that that we are the only ones is really arrogant of of us. Right. Uh, to yeah. think that that there's no other there are no other beings in this universe. This universe is way too big. And, and the other thing about it, and I was having a, a conversation with uh, was it Michael Schratt yesterday? I think it was Michael. Um, he's my buddy. I don't know, I don't know if you've ever had a chance to interview Michael, but he's one of the best researchers out there. I haven't, uh, but I would love to. I, I saw him and heard him on something not long ago, and and he sounds very interesting too. It's mind blowing that it's been out there all this time and we never made the connections or I, I never made the connections, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're on, we're on our way. Yeah. Uh, and you can so. give me a buzz anytime. All right. Our conversation with Jim was startling, revealing, and provided the confirmation we wanted about our research. There are indeed Fortune 500 and 100 companies participating in top-secret research and development, both in the private sector and at the governmental level. Are these companies hiding alien technology and even alien beings here on Earth? Or do these companies and agencies know that otherworldly beings are walking among us? Is this why so many UFO and humanoid sightings occur near the sites that these companies call home? We thought the confirmation of our research would provide some type of validation, even closure, to this chapter of the story. On the contrary, we couldn't leave a revelation of that magnitude alone, now could we? This has been part four of I Am Cold Black Book. A special thanks to Jim Goodall for his time and military service. This series was written, hosted, researched, and produced by Brendan Shea and Annie Weibel. Additional researcher and co-producer is Chris DeMarais. Follow Chris on his Facebook group, MUFON South Carolina. Thanks for listening. We will see you in time.